Support comes from Troy University, welcoming prospective students to explore more than 170 majors and minors in more than 40 graduate and professional degree programs. Now accepting applications for the fall semester. More information at troy.edu admissions. The opinions expressed on this program represent the viewpoints of individual authors or contributors and do not necessarily reflect those of Troy University. This is eConversations, a joint production of Troy Trojan Vision and the Manuel H. Johnson Center for Political Economy. Now, here's your host, Dr. Dan Sutter. Hello and welcome to eConversations. I'm your host, Dr. Dan Sutter of the Johnson Center for Political Economy at Troy University. Student debt in the United States now exceeds $1.5 trillion, and proposals to forgive at least a portion of this debt are contentious political issues. College graduates also earn more on average than persons with only a high school education, and the hope for a better life also drives students and their parents to take out some of these loans. This debt has been taken on in part because the cost of college keeps increasing, even when adjusting for inflation. But has the cost of educating young people truly increased that much? A look inside the finances of our universities showed that the fastest growing components of college education are not for instruction. What can, make, what can we make of all these various factors? Well, for one thing, these trends are all interrelated, which is perhaps the major message of a new report from the National Association of Scholars called Priced Out, What College Costs America. Joining me on eConversations today is the author of the report, Nito Arnold. Ms. Arnold is a research associate with the National Association of Scholars and a graduate of Cornell University. Welcome to the show, Nito. Thank you for having me. Um, before we get started about talking about the report, if you could uh, tell us a little bit about the National uh, Association of Scholars, the, the organization that you work for and that put out this report. The National Association of Scholars is a membership organization comprised of scholars and other people who are interested in academic reform. Uh, one particular issue we're concerned about is the increasing cost of college, and that's why we were interested in publishing this report. And just a little bit more information about my research. So I studied the issues of student debt, rising college costs, and uh, growing college administrations for the past year and a half. Mm -hmm. And we really looked at uh, 50 universities from across the country and we used information from the integrated post-secondary education data system uh, we're gonna we're gonna call that iPads it's a little shorter right. and easier to remember and uh, we also use public information requests to uh, analyze the finances of uh, various colleges but we also wanted to provide a human perspective. So why are students willing to take out loans? Uh, why are students going to college? How are administrators making these decisions? And so mm -hmm. we interviewed 50 college graduates, uh, current students, and other people who took an untraditional post-secondary education path. We also interviewed various parents and mm -hmm. Uh, we also interviewed seven college administrators, two of whom were presidents, and then uh, the, the rest work uh, at some level of the administration. Okay. Well, and, and it's a, a fascinating report with a lot of uh, ground, way more than we would possibly be able to cover here. But 
I want to start by talking about, you, you talk about three different, um, at first glance, perhaps seemingly unrelated elements of, of uh, the college, uh, uh, college situation here. One is the, the level of debt that students have taken on. The second is the question of college costs. And then the, the third issue is uh, the growth of administration. So if you could, before we get into talk about how they're all related, uh, what's, what are some of the facts here about how much these uh, factors have been growing or, or sort of changing together here? Right, so when we're looking at just student debt, the student debt crisis, uh, right now there are 45 million Americans who owe over $1.7 trillion in federal student loans. That isn't even considering those who took out private student loans. The average time it takes to pay off those loans is about 20 years. And I really thought it was important to look at the consequences of student debt. A lot mm -hmm. of times, it's seen as an individual issue because the choice to take out a loan is an individual one. But I think the issues are uh, far more reaching. And you know, an example is we're seeing policies such as a student a student debt forgiveness receiving a lot of attention. And I think a big reason it's appealing to a lot of people is because they look at their own dire situations. They see that they're paying student debt for many years uh, for a college education that should be providing good jobs and good opportunities, but instead they have all these loans that they need to pay off along with other increasing costs in other sectors. And uh, things like student debt forgiveness, universal basic income, universal health care all seem appealing, but this is a, essentially a wealth transfer from those who decided to go to college and take on loans and those who may not have made that choice. And I mentioned that college, the cost of college has been rising, and that's even adjusting for inflation. How much has the, the cost uh, gone up over, you know, say, the last 30 or 40 years? Right, so my study looks at uh, college costs increasing between 1980 to 2018, so that's about 40 years right there, mm -hmm. and it's more than doubled. Uh, the current cost, uh, or the average cost students pay for a public four-year university is around $25,000. Mm -hmm. And for a private university, it's a little bit over 50000 Okay. And, and again, that's doubling, and that's after correcting for inflation. This isn't just this isn't just right. inflation that's been dropping. Okay. So it's, in fact, uh, cost has increased much faster than inflation. And then the third thing, you, you notice that there, there's a, an increase in the number of people, in, I guess, in, in administrative uh, positions with universities, as opposed to necessarily folks like me as uh, professors or other people actually in the classroom teaching. So what are some of the, the details there? Right. So the other part of my study looks at administrative bloat, and we provide a precise definition that it is the wasteful expansion of spending on administrators and staff. And uh, you know, some of the facts on that is at four-year public and private universities, for every one instructor, there are 2.6 administrators. And a lot of these administrators we saw uh, typically work in marketing, university relations, uh, public relations, things that are related to expanding the university's influence or brand. Uh, and one thing that's important to mention here is that when uh, the number of administrators grow and they outnumber uh, instructional faculty, especially full-time faculty. Uh, the interests are naturally going to skew towards things that are 
outside the scope of education. And so it was important to talk about administrative bloat here because uh, when we talk about student debt and rising college costs, we're looking at the cost side of the equation. Mm -hmm. uh, rising cost itself is not necessarily an issue, right? If you pay $100, you hope that you get something that's worth $100. But administrative bloat looks at the quality side of the equation. And so we wanted to see first, where are the administrators expanding? What, are, what kind of decisions are they making? And is this changing the university for the better or is, is it not? Well, and, and so, I think the big co uh, contribution of your report is show how, how these things are, are really related. And, and I think uh, uh, you start where you talk about uh, some of the experiences of people who are struggling with student loan debt. And, and I think this is important because like certainly, uh, usually it's the case, I, I know enough about the, the issue that you know, when you hear a sob story in, in a, a newspaper story about uh, the student loan crisis and somebody's got $150,000 in debt, it's probably because they went to a, a very exclusive uh, private school and were paying full tuition, and maybe they went on and got a master's degree on, on top of that. So you could point to say like, well, you've made some decisions here that you know, you know, weren't so good and, and you got yourself in the, this own mess. But as you point out, it's a, it's a lot harder for you know, anybody who isn't from a very wealthy family to necessarily be able to afford college without uh, student loans. You're absolutely correct. And I think the big factor driving this based on the interviews I connected is that a lot of people are not making the most rational decisions. And that's because they're, they're uh, decisions are really motivated by fear, mm -hmm. fear of missing out on the best job opportunities, academic programs. Some of it is not academically related. It may be missing out on social experiences, um, right. you know, the typical college experience. And so that, and look, when you're making decisions based off of fear, you may not be making the most rational decisions. And that was something that uh, some of these students told me that their biggest regret when it came to college uh, it wasn't the fact that they received a higher education, but it was more between how uh, it was more over how they chose between colleges. And you know, one major theme I saw was uh, some students who were growing up in small towns, or they felt like it was the middle of nowhere, mm -hmm. uh, Kansas. Uh, they were really intrigued by the private university, the fancy private university, and they thought that it would offer the best education. And even though they received offers from locations that were nearby or didn't have the most prestigious name. Uh, they went to the expensive university. They didn't think about the costs that might be associated either living in an expensive city or mm -hmm. um, just paying for an expensive education. And now that they're paying off their debt, they, they realize the mistake they've made. And uh, of course, that's why they shared it with me. They really wanted other people to learn from their mistakes so that they don't end up in the same situation that uh, these people who talk to me are in. And you, you talk about, the, you mentioned the fear side of it, but the, as, as you talk about in the report, the fear also comes from the fact that college graduates do earn significantly more than, than high school graduates. And so there's a dual-edged sword of that. In one sense, it's an incentive to go to, uh, and so go to college, but it's also showing up as, as you find as, as a fear of not going to college. If I don't go to college, what kind of life prospects or career prospects would I have? So that, that seems to be an important tension. 
Absolutely. And uh, what you're speaking of here is actually called the college earnings premium. It's the gap between those who have a college education and their earnings uh, versus uh, the earnings of just high school graduates. And that is a legitimate concern. Now, um, I think it's a little bit overblown. You know, over the past couple of years, uh, that earnings premium has actually been uh, narrowing. Mm -hmm. And a big reason for that is because uh, many students are going into debt. And so even if they have the high paying job, if you have to uh, pay off your loans, it's, it's kind of evening out in that sense. Uh, meanwhile, the high school graduates who didn't go into debt, they have the opportunity to build their wealth. Uh, I actually interviewed one student who was just a high school graduate. You know, he knew he wanted to go into law enforcement at 18, but between 18 and 21 years old, he had to find some uh, time to fill because he couldn't go into law enforcement until he was 21. Uh, so he just worked restaurant jobs, uh, found out their jobs, and then as soon as he was the right age, he uh, he he went through the necessary training, and now he works in prison security. Is making somewhere between seventy to ninety thousand dollars, and he's even building on his wealth. He has a boat, and he's even working towards his retirement. And so, in one sense, yes, it's great that college offers great you know, financial opportunities. But it is if people are responding to that out of the fear, that that's a problem. Another thing that ties you know, a lot of these different issues together is uh, you know, we hear some about over-credentialing of, of graduates, that, that some uh, people are working in jobs that in the past never required a, a college degree. As a, a free market economist, I'm reluctant to second-guess businesses. So if a business decides they want to have a, a require college, a college degree for a job that in the past they haven't, I figure that they probably have a good reason for doing that. But they might not, the, the good reason they have might be, have more to do with the law or regulation or, or, or occupational licensing than necessarily what they, the, the skills that they need from the people filling these jobs, right? Uh, you're absolutely right. And, uh, you know, just as employers should be able to decide whether they want to use a college degree as a sort of entrance exam, so to say, uh, they should also have the option to administer their own uh, tests. And they currently cannot do that if it results in a, a discriminatory outcomes. This is based on a ruling in the 1970s by the Supreme Court. Uh, this was uh, Duke versus Griggs Power, or excuse me, Griggs versus Duke Power Company. Uh, in this ruling, uh, the Supreme Court said that uh, employers could not administer their own aptitude tests if it resulted in a disparate impact based on uh, protected classes such as race, sex, uh, any other protected characteristic. Uh, for a lot of employers, uh, it, it was just a lot easier to turn to the college degree as this mm -hmm. proxy for intelligence, talent, aptitude, uh, rather than uh, putting themselves in harm's way by uh, worrying about any sort of litigation. Uh, because of this, many employers do require a college education, even as you just said, uh, those jobs may not have required it many years ago. And it's not that the nature of the jobs have necessarily changed. So for mm -hmm. a lot of people, they don't really have a choice over whether to attend college or not. And, and then in other cases where we have occupational licensing, which is a, a laws that states put in place 
uh, that, that's established conditions that people must meet be able to be able to hold a license in a different profession. A lot of these professions require college degrees and sometimes even master's degrees, advanced degrees in, in order to be able to, to practice in, in the field. Again, whether absolutely sort of necessary or, or not, right? Yes, and I think that's a big time and financial burden, uh, regardless of whether you take out student loans. And again, there are very social, economic, and political consequences. You know, one thing that we understand is that stable families are necessary for stable nations. Mm -hmm. And right now, uh, when students are going to college, and it, it's, again, a time burden, uh, they're pushing off things like creating families, getting married, and you know, this can be really consequential down the road. Uh, you know, at some point we may have a, a retired age population that outnumbers the working age population. Right. So to support the retired population, it's gonna be on the backs of fewer workers. And so mm -hmm. I, I don't think that's going to be good down the road. I know Japan is already uh, grappling with that issue right now. And uh, Europe is next and America could be next if uh, we don't uh, look at these issues right now. No, when it comes to um, the cost of educate, college education that's been going up, you know, th there are some, uh, I think, uh, it, explanations that have been advanced by scholars who study the industry, but you, you talk about several of them in the report and, and suggest that none of, them are, none of the existing ones offer a complete and, and totally uh, a compelling story for, for what's going on here. And so talk about a little bit about some of the other explanations that people have offered for, for why college costs so much more now than it did in, in 1980. Right, so there are various theories we talk about, and I think some, I, I'd like to clarify that some do a better job at explaining why uh, tuition could have risen than others. Mm -hmm. And so uh, one example is state disinvestment. I like to call it cheap states theory. Uh, mm -hmm. Basically, higher education advocates will argue that they had to increase their tuition because uh, their states no longer cared about higher education and they just took away the funding. Usually, they will rely on a limited number of years and they'll look at how it declined. Uh, and in some cases, that could be true that there are university cities that rely significantly more on public funding and so any sort of change could affect that model. But at least uh, in our sample of 26 public universities, uh, we found that that wasn't really the case. In fact, uh, increases tuition to tuition far exceeded those that were lost in, uh, uh, in state funding losses. And so we don't think it's a complete, uh, it doesn't tell the complete story. And it is rather convenient for higher education administrators to push this narrative so that they can get more state funding from their mm -hmm. legislatures. So that's one example. Um, I, on the contrast, I think there's one example that gives a more complete, um, complete look at this issue, and I think that's the Bennett hypothesis. Uh, the Bennett hypothesis was proposed by uh, Education Secretary ben, uh, William Bennett uh, during the Reagan administration, he suggested that uh, tuition could, uh, college costs could be becoming more expensive because uh, universities are receiving uh, funding from student aid, and uh, you know that was the basic explanation. Now, 
earlier studies uh, found mixed results on these um, uh, on his claims, and uh, they were they were looking at a fewer fewer number of years, but uh, later studies uh, show more support for this theory, and so. I think there are many strengths to it, but the only thing is you can't really see causation. And so mm -hmm. I think the only way to prove the Bennett hypothesis is if an administrator came out and said, uh, you know, William Bennett was absolutely correct. This is what we're doing. Well, okay. Another thing is that some of these explanations as to why the cost of college are going up are missing the point of exactly where the, the, the costs that college, colleges are incurring are going up. It, that some of them might be in, is assuming that it's got to be instruction, that the cost of instruction is going up. But it is, you know, some of the things that you mentioned are you know, administrators uh, and then also the, the um, recruiters or, or people who are working to, to, in part to try to help uh, attract students, students support uh, services uh, as, a, as a category. Now, one thing that stands in contrast to the typical K through 12 uh, public education system in the United States is that uh, colleges don't have exclusive attendance zones. And it, or another way to think about it is for college in the United States, we have school choice. Uh, if, if you grew up in Alabama, you can attend any of the, I think, 14 different four-year colleges and pay in-state tuition. You don't have to simply go to the one that happens to be closest to you. So colleges have to compete for students. And, and normally, and, and especially in contrast to K through 12 education, we think that that's a good thing. So what, what sort of draw, what sort of the drawback, or, or where are there some drawbacks of that uh, in, in higher education? So I think for one, one thing, uh, we're trying to attract so many students, even though the purpose of higher education, it's kind of twofold. So on one hand, it's about preserving knowledge, and that may mean uh, per, uh, keeping courses that do not draw in a lot of students, but they still hold importance. And then mm -hmm. we also have this other competing priority of just seeing how many students we can bring to the university. We don't really care so much about whether they care to be here whether uh, they're academically inclined. And so that's why you might see more investments in areas such as zip lines. Uh, that was something I found. There's a wellness director at West Virginia University who's making six figures, and he focuses on installing zip lines and adventure courses. Mm. Uh, you know, those are usually used to attract and keep students who may need some uh, additional things to keep them around. And right. uh, it, it really weeds them out from the academic, academically inclined students who may like zip lines, but they're not drawn to the university simply because of that. And their their willingness to stay through a program is not determined by some of these uh, superfluous uh, expenditures. The other part of the cost increases in the area of administration. And you know, as, as somebody who works in higher education, I can certainly say that you know, universities have to turn out a lot of, of reports. A lot they have to provide a lot of data, both to state governments, to the federal government, and then to uh, what we call accreditation bodies, uh, the, the groups that uh, that uh, evaluate and rate different uh, universities as a whole, and then pro specialized programs within the uh, the universities. And so we have to generate a lot of data. And in some sense, the, uh, the, the growth in administration is being driven by the demands for reports or data. 
And I guess what that really means makes us have to think about is is all of this oversight from uh, creditors and uh, the government really necessary, or, or is that unnecessarily driving up the cost? Uh, I mean, there is a lot of uh, federal entanglement with higher education, and that would be driving up the cost. You mentioned accreditation, and uh, just to clarify for those who uh, don't know what accredi accrediting agencies are, you know, think of it as um, agencies that oversee an institution's educational quality. So they may look at whether a university is uh, being fiscally responsible to whether they are really committed to uh, more ideological agendas such as diversity. And in order to check on these universities, higher education institutions need to hand in a lot of paperwork. Uh, now at one point, uh, uh, the accreditation system may have made sense. It was uh, create, It was established in the late 1800s. This was a time when a lot of universities were being founded. And uh, this, was this was the age before the internet. So uh, for a lot of consumers, they would probably want to know if they're going to a diploma mill or they're going to a legitimate university. And mm -hmm. the accreditation status uh, communicated whether a university was legitimate. Mm -hmm. Now, I think accreditation has outlived its purpose at this point. It's become more burdensome, um, as I think uh, some administrators even explained to me. And uh, at this point, it's, it's really just, um, it, it's just another federal regulation that, or, or additional regulations that uh, administrators must follow. And this gets into some of the recommendations or that you offer in terms of how to uh, address this. And in one sense, recommendations aren't so simple because if you have you have these interconnected problems and so complicated interconnected problems don't usually admit themselves to really simple solutions um, but you know one of the things you, you mentioned is is some type of a reform of a accreditation and especially and I think this is relevant how what the uh, the Department of Education the US Department of Education is using accreditation for a part of what it's doing in terms of directing student uh, federal student aid to, to universities, and I, I thought that was a, a particularly a good idea to try to, to reform here, so I wanted to, to give you a chance to talk about that. Yeah, so I think, uh, again, accreditation has really outlived its purpose uh, in many ways. Students usually uh, don't look at an accreditation status to know if a university is legitimate. They will usually hear through word of mouth or they will go on, online, uh, go to US News Rankings or uh, the university's website to see what the university has to offer. And so I'd really say that we don't need the accreditation system anymore. Um, I know at the federal level right now that may be a little bit difficult to accomplish, but I do think we need to keep the conversation going on this uh, on this recommendation and uh, just reducing the amount of federal oversight that many universities have to follow. And that's important because you know the the farther away from the decisions, uh, you know, sometimes it's very hard to figure out why these college costs are increasing. And many times they are. Uh, due to the demands of, of accrediting bodies, uh, that they, they make specific requests onto universities, and universities have to, you know, build new buildings or, or, or invest in other things, hire uh, additional faculty or additional support service people, because the creditors are telling them they have to do this, and it's very, it becomes very difficult to have any kind of accountability when things are so, uh, I guess, non-transparent. 
right? Right, right. Um, and I, I can actually think of an example. Uh, it's not so much accrediting as it is just federal regulations in general, but this affected uh, a, a, a college uh, that had limited resources and the this was after uh, the 2011 Dear Colleague letter, which was an Obama-era directive that was essentially asking for more um, oversight from Title IX offices. And, um, you know, they really wanted to increase the investigations and punishments for uh, alleged sex offenders uh, without due process. And this would mean expanding Title IX bureaucracies. Now this administrator really didn't want to hire another Title IX administrator. Uh, that was a professor that he wouldn't get to hire. And, uh, but in many ways he was just forced to, and he also thought it was ideologically motivated. He didn't like the uh, vagueness of the Dear Colleague letter and what it was implying. Uh, but in many ways he didn't really have a choice. Well, thanks very much uh, for coming on. We've come to the end of our time, but again, I just want to mention that the, the study that you've offered is called Priced Out and is, is from the, the National Association of Scholars. And again, thanks very much for coming on and, and sharing your insight that you've gained from this report into this very important issue. Thank you for having me. Thanks. And join us again next time for another eConversations. This has been eConversations, a joint production of Troy Trojan Vision and the Manuel H. Johnson Center for Political Economy at Troy University. 